listening to the Film Monsters Podcast with me and Ray. <laughs> well, hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Film Monsters Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dennis Villanueva. And I'm your other co-host who doesn't have anything <laughs> clever to say because he's in pain because he fractured his foot, Ray. Ray, I'm so sorry that you fractured your foot. Uh, do you want to tell the good people at home what's going on so they can send you positive messages during healing? By the time this by the time this is uh, released, hopefully you're not in as much pain as you are now. So you know how Nate, you know how they say it's dangerous business walking out your front door. Apparently, they never tell you that it's also dangerous business to walk inside your front door. <laughs> no, because, they do not. No one gives be, you that warning. Because as you do when it's been the first no, you clean your, your sidewalk and then you go into your house and you slip down your stairs all the way down to the basement. It looks something straight out of, you know, freaking Home Alone. And that wasn't pain. It's been fun. You can replay it in the back of your head uh, and, and like see yourself from outside of your body and you can laugh about it in a few months when the pain has completely gone away. <laughs> Man, I, I, I have a show next week and I don't know how I'm going to make it happen now. <sighs> well, I'm, I am sorry, sir. That is, you can always, you know, you can always have someone push you in on a wheelchair. Maybe you can do crutches for a little bit. You know, you go to CVS and pick yourself up like like a crutch or something. Maybe you can pull it off in that way. Don't nobody will mess with me in the pit. No, not at all because you started <laughs> wielding them off with the crutch. <laughs> so this is another episode of the Film Monsters podcast with one co-host not in pain and the other in pain. But I think I can talk about something that'll make us both feel a little less in pain. And that is, Ray, are you familiar with a production company called A24 by any means? Do you know anything about them? I mean, I think when I took that tumble down the stairs, I may have hit the part of my brain that forgot about that. Well, we may have done some episodes talking about A24, and there was something, my horror heart is very happy, and I know Ray will be excited about this, but A24 announced this week that... After years of rights issues and people trying to get a hold of this property, that they have acquired the rights to Friday the 13th and that Mr. Brian Fuller, who created one of, in my opinion, the greatest television shows of all time, Hannibal. He's worked on so many amazing properties. He's an incredible storyteller, uh, an amazing filmmaker, is going to be making the Friday the 13th prequel series on Peacock that will be produced by A24. And he said that since he was a little kid, when he was 10 years old, he has been thinking about the story of what happened before the original Friday the 13th. And that A24 is giving him complete creative control to do whatever he wants with it. And honestly, the idea of taking a property like Friday the 13th that turned into this very campy, goofy, over-the-top uh, ridiculous franchise with Jason Voorhees, this whole idea of like 
looking at the camp counselors and maybe a very young Jason Voorhees and how he was treated at the camp and how the dynamics between those counselors worked. I think that sounds like a really cool idea. And as two people who want unique perspectives from horror, I am very excited about this. That he, it's you know, it's funny. I think I just made a joke about this on like a different episode that we did, where I was like, "Imagine if we got some like a twenty four version of Friday the Thirteenth." Yes, and we are getting it. You predicted the future. <laughs> I talk all the time about. Hannibal and one of the great things about Hannibal is that Brian Fuller took that source material and kind of did his own thing with it and and it's it is my favorite interpretation of the character of Hannibal Lecter and so I doing this as a TV series is such a really unique way to approach it hopefully it's really well received because I would love studios to take more of a chance on stuff like this like that is such a cool idea to take a beloved property and turn it into something where it's not just doing the same thing over and over again. It's doing something completely new. Makes you wonder what direction it's going to take it. Do you know the name of the of the project yet? Uh, it's. I think it's just titled Crystal Lake tentatively right now. Oh, okay. That'll be interesting. That'll be a good way to lure people into Peacock. Exactly. And I, uh, I believe Peacock is you can get a free membership uh, where you can watch like certain things with ads. But I know there's certain things that like they're premium charged and you have to pay like an upcharge on it. So I'm wondering how that will be available. Um, maybe like a base level streaming service. But I have Peacock. I pay for like their minimum uh, monthly fee, whatever it is. It's only like $4.99 or something super cheap. And uh, there's a lot of good movies on there too. I'll have to check it out. I do I, I do have like a free account, but I've hardly ever used it because it's just such a limited um, selection. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's one of those things where every, you have to pay for everything now. And unfortunately, there's 87,000 streaming services out there. So you kind of have to pick and choose what you want. But Peacock has enough cool things. I did watch a really great Peacock show this year called The Resort. That was a Peacock original. That was just one season, but it was really great. But yeah, uh, Crystal Lake, uh, something for us horror fans to get excited about for next year. I can't really think of another like property that's that big that has ever been turned into like a popular TV show. So that's so cool. Yeah, I'm excited. I'll be excited to see the direction that they take. Because yeah, like we might as well try something new with it. I'm also concerned though that like it'll be maybe a little too high art and then people are just gonna be like where is jason kind of like how people complain about halloween ends well i think the good thing about the where is jason thing is that since they've already come out and said that it's a prequel to friday the 13th jason will probably be in it but he's gonna be a kid because if you're looking pre-original friday the 13th jason never shows up in that movie it's just mrs Voorhees. so tech technically speaking if you're a true fan of the franchise, you know adult Jason in a hockey mask is never going to show up. That is true. They might do little, like, Easter eggs, you know, but... Yes, and fan service moments, which I, I think we can all expect. But, uh, yeah, I just wanted to bring that up because I thought that it would be exciting and 
hopefully they churn out something really good because I think uh, I think us horror fans deserve a, a a go at a property by someone who is such an incredibly talented filmmaker to make something truly unique because I'm so bummed that Hannibal was only three seasons because it was amazing. I'm excited too. Then I'll have to I might have to consider the whole Peacock world for just for the show alone now we're going to get into talking about directors and ray and i had uh, last week talked about a director that we both love very near and dear to our hearts mr john carpenter and i had so much fun doing that and today we're going to talk about a director that ray absolutely loved that he recommended that we watch his films and that is mr denis villeneuve oh yes my french canadian hero Denis. And Ray, honestly, you know, one of the cool parts about doing this show with you is that it really kind of pushes me to watch films that have been on my watch list for a really long time. And, you know, it, it it's like you never understand why you push things to the back. Like maybe it's like, oh, something just pops up and you want to watch it really quickly. Maybe you have to spend some more time seeking out other properties. But now I can officially say I've watched every Denis Villeneuve movie and I understand where your love for him comes from because he is just a really talented filmmaker. Like honestly, I can say after watching his entire catalog that he has never made a bad movie. No, not even remotely close. Yeah, it's, it's, and what's really interesting, and I'm sure we'll get into it when we start going through his entire filmography, but he's made such a wide array of films as far as like going over multiple genres and styles. And I feel like what's cool about Villeneuve, there's hallmarks in his cinematography, and I feel like there's hallmarks even in like, the, the storytelling methods, like I'm sure, Ray, that you would agree with me, that it seems like a reoccurring theme for Villeneuve in almost all of his films is trauma. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. He he definitely touches on, on a lot of trauma, a lot of, like, identity, like self-identity issues. Um, he is definitely, sometimes to a fault, very outspoken about his views on feminism. Which, which I'm all for, but some of his movies, they can be very on the nose. But he definitely has, he has things to say. And, and I admire that because I feel like even his most, let's call, let's quote unquote call them accessible movies, they still have something to say. Yes, I completely agree. And I, I watched this interview with him last night because I like when we're doing these episodes. I did it similarly with John Carpenter, and mostly it's just to get me excited to talk about their work. But I watched this brief interview with Villeneuve, and I want to say this was in like probably like 2013 when Prisoners and Enemy came out. Um, and he was talking about working on film, and he said, you know, when when I'm on the set, I want to draw this line and say, hey, if you're this like pretentious or like up in your head asshole, I want you over there because I want to work with people who are passionate about the craft, who love making movies. And he said, there's nothing more beautiful to me than like 200 people all working together to create this piece of art that is going to positively impact someone's life. And that like really moved me. And honestly, like looking at someone like him who now, I mean, you think the past two films he's made are in theory, big budget, crowd pleasing science fiction films, but I still feel like at both of their core, 
they are human stories and he's able to flesh out these characters and add elements to each one of them that I feel like we can attach ourselves onto. And he is a really incredibly human storyteller. And that's something I really respect about Villeneuve throughout his entire catalog. Yeah, I am. Um, I definitely agree with that. And there's definitely passion in the things that he does. I like that Denis Villeneuve too. He like he does this thing where he's not quite a abstract storyteller like you know like like a David Lynch where it's a lot of like interpreting. But he's also not like a mainstream blockbuster. He he kind of writes that line of having a message, of having a method, of having his art house influences come through while still keeping it um, mainstream enough for general audiences to grasp on, which I I think that's a really hard thing to do because I feel like some directors either are too alienating or too smart for us or, you know, like you you have a David Lynch, for example, who is like, I I love his movies, but I'd be honest, like he does make me feel dumb at times. And then you have your Michael Bay's where it's all about the explosions and no substance. And I feel like Villeneuve rides this line of taking both of those and putting them in this little neat box for people. Yeah, I would say probably his most surreal that he gets is, is Enemy. And I feel like there is a, like, I know a lot of Villeneuve fans who have seen Enemy that really hate it. Uh, and I, I get it because it really does kind of dip its toe into like being very surreal to where I feel like there's nothing in that movie that's very like spelled out to where it's not like okay here is the here is the exposition telling you what's happening between these characters but if you look at something like earlier in his career like in Sandy's where you have this really beautiful human story that's being told but it is told in a very abstract non-linear way that does have some very surreal moments but I don't feel like it it like what you said I don't feel like it isolates the viewer in a way that they wouldn't be able to pick up what's happening in that movie yeah absolutely um so Without further ado, Nate, let's just let's just jump into this thing because you're getting me all all excited about this. Yeah, so like I said, I was lucky enough to get to watch all of his movies, and with Ray dealing with an injury and stuff this week, and also because I have the Criterion Channel and Ray doesn't, I was able to watch the first two films in Villeneuve's catalog, and Ray has seen everything else. Uh, so I can briefly talk about his first two films. There's nothing really to say uh, extremely about them, but I do think they're really interesting, and I'm sure, Ray, so you not seeing them and loving Villeneuve that you'll be interested in this. So I read a quote um, last night that I thought was really interesting, which is when he made August 32nd on Earth and Maelstrom, he took a nine-year break. He made a comment to and said, like, I wanted to be a dad, I wanted to be at home. I wasn't really proud of those movies and I wanted to take a step back until I could come back and make something that I was proud of uh, with the 2009 film Polytechnique, which is interesting because as much as I don't think the first two films in Villeneuve's catalog are like his best by any means, they're really interesting. So his first film in 1998, August 32nd on Earth, I'll just give a brief description of it. But it's this young woman, she's out driving in her car, and she gets in an almost fatal automobile accident. And she gets out, someone stops by her car after it's wrecked, 
Um, they take her to the hospital and she gets out and she's trying to navigate her way through life and she's just miserable. Well, all of a sudden she decides that the only way that she thinks that she's going to be happy in life is if she has a child. And so she calls her best friend up, who is this guy named Philippe, and they start talking to each other and she's like, Hey, I know we're not in a relationship. I know you're living your own life, but will you have sex with me and get me pregnant so that I can have a baby? You don't have to take care of the baby. There's no strings attached with it. Uh, there's no, you don't have to stick around and be the dad. And he's like really off put by it because you can tell that he truly cares about her and he doesn't really want to do that. So he makes a joke to her and says, okay, I'll get you pregnant. But the only way I'm going to get you pregnant is if we go out and have sex in the desert somewhere. And so they live in Canada. And so she goes online and researches and they end up flying to like somewhere near California. I want to say maybe even Nevada to go out into the desert and to have sex with each other so that she can conceive a baby. And it's a really simple concept to a film, but at the end of the day, it's really a movie that's just kind of all about finding yourself and understanding who you are as a person. And overcoming trauma in the sense of this one, it's a car accident where she almost loses her life. And I feel like that comes into play a little bit in the movie, but it's really just a simplistic character building study. And what I thought you'd think was interesting, Ray, is the day after her car accident, title cards come up and it's like August 32nd, August 33rd, August 34th, which is like they're not real dates. So I thought that was a really interesting and almost like surreal ab like idea to put into this film where you're like putting into question, okay, is what I'm watching even real? And the cinematography is incredibly beautiful. Uh, it's definitely like, it's only an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, it has some pacing issues, but I definitely think it's worth watching to see kind of how Villeneuve is able to take such a simplistic concept, but still build on these incredible character relationships. Huh, that sounds really fascinating. Um, it looks like he already had really unique ideas from like the beginning of things. Yeah, it's a, it's a really unique concept. I don't really have much more to say about it because it's just it really is just like simple character interactions. There's a lot of comedy in the movie, and also there's a lot. I know there was a lot of people who compared it to uh, the film Breathless, which has a lot of like choppier editing intentionally uh when you look at like Jean-Luc Godard's whole filmography he, he's known for having weird wild editing choices and there's a lot of that in this movie but he gets even more surreal in his movie two years later Maelstrom which if I describe this movie to people in the audience they're probably not even going to believe it but uh a lot of people online said it's Denis Villeneuve's Finding Nemo <laughs> 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 Which was a funny joke, but the movie opens in this dirty, grimy, disgusting, like, fishmonger house. And this guy is cutting heads off of fishes, and one of the fish looks directly into the camera and starts talking to the camera. And essentially says, like, I'm gonna tell you this story. And he goes into telling this story about this young woman who gets an abortion. And in the first, like, five minutes of the film, she has an abortion. They say she's, like, a model that also works at this, like fashion boutique her brother has lent her this money to do uh to run the fashion boutique but she's a little all over the place with her payments she can't really keep the place up to speed the way that she should 
And she's constantly getting high and doing drugs and, and she's drunk all the time. And one night she goes to this club. She's out drinking until like God knows when in the morning. And she decides to drive in her car and she ends up hitting this guy in her car. And the guy that she hits is a fishmonger who he ends up getting up after getting hit, going up into his apartment and dying at his kitchen table. And so the movie is she ends up coming into contact with his son and the two worlds of these people, one who feels this horrible guilt about uh, killing this person on accident because it really is an accident. And then this guy who has lost his dad, who it seems like him and his dad have this weird relationship that they weren't really close. And the two of these characters coming together at the weird period they're at in both of their lives. And there's a lot of really weird abstract filmmaking choices in this movie where like it'll show the same scene but from two different characters' perspectives while at the same time you have this fish narrating the entire story which is interesting because the entire story is about a fishmonger and like that whole industry. And so there's a lot of interesting elements to it. I don't think that it works perfectly as a film but there's so many interesting interesting ideas and like what Ray was saying earlier about not isolating your audience there is like a surrealist element to this that I feel like some people might not be able to get behind 100% but I think the narrative is concise enough that the average film goer would be able to watch it and still understand enough what was going on so I think that that's really interesting that those are the two first films in his catalog because they're vastly different but they have enough similarities to where you can kind of see where he took ideas from both of those films and applied them to movies later on in his catalog. Please tell me the fish are speaking French. Yes. Every, oh my uh, goodness, that sounds yeah. Amazing. The entire the entire film is uh, both of the first two films are in French. There's some English in the, in August 32nd because they fly to America, and then I believe for a brief period in Maelstrom they speak Norwegian for like a brief period uh, because the lead character's father was Norwegian and the girl like asks if he knows the language at all so they speak in norwegian for a little bit uh but it's a really interesting movie ray and that they keep cutting back to that dingy like fishmonger place that's like lit really like almost like dirty green like it looks really gross and there's a lot of surreal elements in this that actually remind me of like if villeneuve was gonna make a david lynch movie i just looked up what that fish looks like that thing looks gross oh it's disgusting and the guy who's like cutting the fishes up He's not wearing a shirt. He just has like a like a butcher's apron on and it he just looks so disgusting. Like it's it's a really interesting movie, but I think it's interesting because there's nothing in these movies that like make them inherently awful. And so I'm interested as to what Villeneuve didn't like about these that made him take a 9-year break from making movies. Well, I, just from the things that you have mentioned, I wondered if he doesn't necessarily dislike him, but maybe like he hadn't come to his own as far as style. Like, like you said, there's some reminiscence of like David Lynch or other directors saying, I wonder if he was like, no, I want to find my own style. I want to find the way that I make films rather than just feel like I'm copying other styles. I don't know. I, I don't know how the a director's mind works, but I know that if I were in some director's shoes, I would want to have something wholeheartedly mine. No, I, I completely agree with you. And I'll, I'll say Ray and I both yesterday for the first time 
watched his 2009 film uh, Polytechnique, which I think starts to kind of get you into the space of where you can see his vision as a filmmaker. I think there's still hallmarks from some other filmmakers that you can see he's still trying to develop his voice. But you can tell he had a vision for this film, and it's a it's a very simplistic movie, but obviously, technically speaking, it is executed really well. Yeah, no, I I I thought it was a I thought it was a good movie, although probably my least favorite on the catalog. But I thought it was a, it, it was a well done, well directed. You know, cinematography as usual is is gorgeous. Um, I did appreciate. I don't know how you felt about this, but I appreciated the fact that though it's based on a true story he's he they said at the beginning it's like out of you know respect for the victims all the characters we're adding here are actually fake yeah i know that they said that they were based off of uh accounts from what happened and like they i know they said they changed the names of the people so that like no one would be called out specifically and i i always think when people do this so for you guys out there that don't know polytechnic is uh, a retelling of something that actually happened at a school in Canada where a guy went in and shot a whole bunch of people uh, at a school in like the it's like the late 80s I think it's like 1989 really it is it is just a like we get introduced to the shooter really early on he has this dialogue which Ray and I both talked about you know Villeneuve having a vision and being very open about his perspective on feminism but this the way it's portrayed, he, like, writes this letter that you're assuming is, like, his suicide note or what he's doing. And he just goes on this tirade about, like, I hate feminists and blah, blah, blah. And there's I, there's something that felt kind of corny about it. And whether or not that's the real note that the guy left behind, the movie ends up after that just being a very simplistic retelling where there's not a whole lot to grasp onto. Uh, the lead actress... It, uh, you get introduced to her early on where she's an engineering major. She wants to do this job. She goes in for this internship interview and the guy's like, oh, well, do you want to have kids or something? And it's like, okay, we get it. Like it's a high stress job. But at the same time, you know, men could go have kids and have that job. So why is that even a conversation? I don't know. It's like th there's not a whole lot to grasp onto other than the cinematography and the atmosphere for me to ever say that I'd want to watch this again. But I admire Villeneuve for how technically brilliant the movie is it is um i think the the biggest issue i took other than how like in your face everything was and of course this is a retelling so i'm sure that there were some things that he left in for the, the sake of telling retelling of the story but like there is almost like no like the it just kind of ends because you 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 get this this whole ordeal of like the mass shooter and it's it's hard to watch because, you know, we live in an era where mass shootings are happening all the time and especially at school. So that alone is already a hard topic, um, you know, because we have idiots as our elected officials that won't do anything about it. But at the same time, it's like we hear about it so much that it's like at that point, like the movie doesn't feel like it's telling anything new. It's just kind of pointing out the reality of what we live in which i understand wholeheartedly you don't want to sugarcoat the reality of things but the kind of issue that i had with it is that like the mass shooting just kind of ends and then you jump forward in time and then you have the characters make certain choices that just felt so out of left field 
Yeah, I completely agree. And then, like, at the end, too, and I don't know if this caught you off guard, and I'm not sure, you know, why Villeneuve decided to portray it this way, but, like, the lead actress at the end of the film, she dyed her hair blonde. And, like, I get, like, maybe you want to move on with your life, get to a new point, but for a minute it took me a second to be like, oh, that's the same person. When we're seeing, like, her actions after all this had happened, you're kind of like, okay, why? And then, like, the guy, there's this guy who's involved with the situation who he is in a classroom where a whole bunch of people get shot, and he ends up finding this girl and, like, you know, trying to help keep her alive. You see him go and, like, have a conversation with his mom, but there's not really, like, any rhyme or reason as to why they're showing that scene or, like, knowing the relationship between the two characters. And it all just seemed like it was Villeneuve trying to give them some kind of character attributes to grasp a hold on to, but there's not enough for it to, to resonate that heavily. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. It just It just kind of fell out of left field. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm not upset that I watched this movie because obviously I wanted to watch everything in Villeneuve's catalog, but like, I don't, if you're going to go through watching Villeneuve's films, I think it's interesting to kind of see where he goes as a filmmaker after this and to kind of give you like a vantage point as to like the shift he took in his own career. But I wouldn't say that this is one that you should jump on and watch first because everything that we're going to talk about from here on out is so much better. Oh yeah, a thousand percent. So Ray, the next film that we're going to talk about in uh, Villeneuve's catalog came out a year later and this is the film Insandis and this is the film that Ray told me of the ones left in Villeneuve's catalog that I hadn't seen yet that I had to watch. So do you want to talk about it a little bit before we get into the, the nitty gritty? Oh, well, I mean... I feel like you're more qualified to talk about it because you just watched it. It's been maybe like a year for me. But I remember I went through this phase where I was like, you know, when I latch onto a director, I want to watch everything. And I want to pick up everything that I can on their catalog. And, and Sandy's was the last one I hadn't seen prior to, poly, to Polytechnic. I had seen everything up until Sandy's, So I picked up Sandy's just... It was a blind purchase. I was like, I know I'm going to love this. And boy, was it a ride. Yes, I completely agree with you. And, you know, what I love about this movie in particular, and this is, I would probably argue, one of the best in Villeneuve's entire catalog. Uh, it, it's a beautiful human story. But at the same time, it has an even larger commentary on religion that is not executed ham-fistedly. It's done so well. It never has to get preachy about it because the whole idea in this film so the simplistic plot line is you have this brother and sister who go to the reading of their mother's will and their in the will of their mother it says you know i live this life i don't feel like i deserve a proper burial with a headstone i i, I think she even goes as far as to say i want to be buried upside down like face down um, and, and like the guy who's reading the will, he's like really off put by it. He's, he's sad that he has to read this to her children. And she says, I will let you give me a tombstone if you, if you find your brother and if you find your biological father. And they're all kind of taken aback by this because for so long they were told that their dad was dead. And the brother in the movie, like not the, not the brother they're going to find, but the brother, 
um, the lead character, he, Simon, I believe it, Jean and Simon are the two siblings. He is like really off put by this. He's like, my mom started to get really weird towards the end. I don't really want anything to do with this situation. And Jean takes it upon herself to go figure this out. And so she ends up leaving. They end up flying to the Middle East. Well, at the same time, you cut to their mother's story, who her mo their mother's name is Noal. And uh, you sh get shown her very early on when she's young, living in this uh, conservative Christian household amidst like this brutally war-torn Middle East where uh, Muslims are being killed by these Christian radicals. In, in the Middle East and their family is really staunchly Christian. She ends up dating this guy who is a Muslim and her family ends up killing him in the first 15 minutes of the movie. And when she tells her mother that she's pregnant, her mother says, okay, I'm gonna let you have this baby but you're gonna have to give it up and then I want you to go move in with your uncle and get an education and have a life. And so this kid who we find out is the brother is separated really early on and so the entire film is us following Nawal's character through these different stages in her life up to when she has the twins and understanding what happened during those different situations while at the same time seeing the effects of this war-torn country because these two religions just hate each other so much and kill each other nonsensically just because they have different belief systems. And so I feel like Villeneuve as a whole is really commentating on the way that religion can be poison and that, you know, just because people have a belief system, they're willing to go kill each other. Like, there's a scene I was telling Ray about, which I don't want to get too much into spoilers, but uh, the, these this group of Christian radicals attacks this bus filled with Muslim refugees and it was honestly one of the hardest scenes I've ever watched in a movie. It really broke my heart. That's the thing about this movie too is like the violence in this movie is so realistic and so hard to watch. It like almost makes your stomach turn. The gunshots in it are like so visceral. That's what got me is like that's there's that scene where you're introduced uh, to the brother's character, which I won't give into context, but someone someone is shooting these kids with a sniper rifle towards the third act of the film and the sound of the sniper going off and hitting people like it just feels so real, which with the action that goes on in later Villeneuve films, you can tell that he is very into making sure that the action elements are treated as very realistic. Yeah, there is just something to to kind of be said about that. Because, yeah, there is some, like, all of Villeneuve movies, um, you also see it on Sicario as well, but um, we'll get to that later. The way how he handles violence is not like a blockbuster violence. It's a very, like, realistic, reactive thing. Like, you watch a violent moment in a Villeneuve movie and it's like, oh, like it, it's uncomfortable to watch. I would even argue that in his later films that are more crowd-pleasing movies, 2049 and Dune, that the violence is handled the same way. Right. I would, I would definitely, like if there's people listening to this that are sensitive to really realistic depictions of violence, like tread lightly with Villeneuve because he definitely doesn't, like he does it in a way where it's still accessible, quote unquote accessible, but between the sound editing, you know, all the sound design and the way how he handles cinematography, it's, it's like stomach turning to watch. Absolutely. And I, honestly, like 
with Insandis, I there's a lot of material in this. Like this movie not only deals with, you know, religious violence and violence in general, but there's rape in this. There's all kinds of really difficult situations to watch. And I think that that all stems from what I was talking about with Ray in the first three movies. And that is this idea of trauma and overcoming trauma. And I think that that is another reoccurring theme that shows up in this movie where obviously our lead character, Nawal, who I would argue is one of the most powerful female characters in all of cinema, uh, what what she went through for her kids is just absolutely amazing. And I don't want to get into spoilers, obviously, but I think Ray and I will both say the third act of this movie will leave your jaw on the floor. Uh, I honestly... Like, there's so many movies that have great twists. I mean, even we talked about this year, as goofy as it might be, a movie like Barbarian, where you go in blindly and something crazy happens. But, like, this movie is a twist that I don't think will ever leave my mind. Uh, it's... And it all comes back to just, like, the horrors of the world and the terrible things of the world. But what I loved about this movie is the way that it looked at these terrible situations and looks at this character who has been through hell, essentially, and how she tried in the later parts of her life to make that the best that it could possibly be after going through those horrible situations. Yeah, and definitely when I when you find out the twist of this movie, it was like... I wasn't even sure how to react. Oh, no. And I also want to talk about it because we're getting into later Villeneuve films, which I know this will be a reoccurring theme for Ray. This movie has a great score, but also what it has is an amazing inclusion of Radiohead music. And <laughs> I, I, what I want to say about that, too, is I feel like a lot of movies can get a little sloppy when they, incor when they incorporate, you know, popular music into a film. But I feel like all of the Radiohead songs that are incorporated into this film, they the themes of those songs work so well with the overall theme that the film is trying to convey. Yeah. No, they definitely did a good job of picking the cues of the songs for each of those moments. And uh, I would go as far as to, before we wrap up our Insandis conversation, I would go as far as to call this movie a masterpiece. I don't really think that there's another word I can use to describe it. I really think it is one of the most brilliant films ever made. I absolutely loved it, and it broke my heart. Yep, no, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. So now... Mr. Villeneuve took a three-year break before he put out another movie, but in his three-year break, he put out two films, and the first film I want to talk about is probably going to be the one I'm the most hazy on, because I haven't seen it since around when it was released, and this was actually my initial exposure to Villeneuve as a filmmaker, was seeing this movie in theaters the first time, and that is the film Prisoners. That one came out first? I thought it was the other one that came out first. Interesting. So, according to Wikipedia, Prisoners came out before Enemy, which surprised me. Interesting. I thought it was the other way around. Prisoners is great. I remember watching this movie, and I was like, man, like, he went from doing these, like, indie films to, like, Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal and Paul Dano, like, this is going to be a blockbuster, basically, and though it's, I don't know how to describe Prisoners, it's just so, this movie is definitely one of those movies that, if you're a parent, if you are uncomfortable with the topic of, you know, child abuse, um, child kidnappings, like this movie will make you uncomfortable to the 10th degree. Well, and I think that this is the movie that when Ray and I talk about 
this whole theme for Villeneuve of trauma. Uh, this is definitely trauma in the most probably realistic form that it could be in because I think, you know, we live in a society now that I would argue is the most fascinated and enthralled with true crime that it's ever been. Uh, you have true crime podcasts. I feel like Netflix puts out a true crime documentary like every other week. And so... This movie dives into that whole idea of parent loses their child to a kidnapping, parent thinks they know who is the one who did it, and so they go on almost like a vigilante tirade to hunt this person down. And what lengths a parent would go to to make sure that their child is safe. And let me tell you, if you think Hugh Jackman is this, like, sexy hunk, your opinion is going to switch very quickly after watching Prisoners. Watching him beat the shit out of Paul Dano. <laughs> to, like, to a degree that's uncomfortable to watch. No, and also, uh, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't mention, uh, while we're talking about Prisoners, that I believe this is the first time that Villeneuve worked with Mr. Roger Deakins as cinematographer. Yeah, you could definitely see that he worked with 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 Roger Deakins in this film because it's shot beautifully. It's shot beautifully. I think this is the first time he also worked with the late Johan Johansson scoring. Yes, I believe that is correct. Um, and I think that uh, what is interesting about this, which I, I wanted to tell you, Ray. So this film was written by a guy named Aaron Guzikowski and he said that this story that he wrote was partially based on Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. Oh, interesting. Which I thought was really, really fascinating because thinking about it through that lens, it makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, and speaking of Villeneuve leaving your jaw dropped, talk about the third act of this movie. That last, that last scene... Uh, is just absolutely insane. And I don't want to get into talking about it, but this movie, obviously, you know, you have Hugh Jackman's character who is like this caring parent who wants to make sure that his kid is safe. And then you have Jake Gyllenhaal's character who is trying to do everything by the book. Like, he wants to be a good cop. He wants to handle this right. But I also think that there are moments that you can see Jake Gyllenhaal's character understanding why Hugh Jackman is like on the verge of like breaking every moment. Cause it's like you put yourself in that situation of like, if I had a kid and my kid was kidnapped, I would tear apart the entire world to find them. And so you can't, you can't really, even though he does things in the movie that, you know, like I said, the scene where he literally like beats the shit out of Paul Dano you're like, okay, you don't know whether or not this is the guy. You don't know. You have no real definitive proof. You're just assuming because of things that he's done in the past. You still have a hard time being mad at him for doing it because you would probably do the same thing. Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, I'm just saying Thanksgiving is coming up. This is the perfect Thanksgiving movie. Uh, this is actually one I'm probably going to plan on rewatching this one this week because, like I said, this is the only Villeneuve film I had not watched in a recent memory. It's been a long time, but I remember like adoring this film and just loving it and it being one of my favorite crime dramas I've ever watched because this was when I saw Villeneuve's name and I immediately wanted to watch everything that he'd made after that. And this is a perfect segue, Ray, if you've got everything out about 
Prisoners, but the next movie I watched from Villeneuve was Enemy. Yep, Enemy is probably his most surreal movie, I would say. 100% agree. Uh, Maelstrom gets into that vibe a little bit, but it doesn't go as far as this one. No, not at all. This movie... I love I love the visual, like the abstract visuals with the spiders is so incredible. And Villeneuve's only time working with A24. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yep, which is really cool to think that he's even worked with A24 in his, uh, in his filmography whatsoever, which is a really cool thing. This movie did not make anywhere near as much money as Prisoners made, and I understand why, because it's not as much of a cloud, crowd pleaser. Um, but this film is based on uh, the book The Double, which I also have... Uh, there's another movie that exists out there called The Double by uh, Richard Aode that covers this subject matter in a very different way. But this story is about uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character, Adam, who's a college professor. He lives a really kind of bland life. It, it shows at the beginning of the movie that he, like his life is just really plain. He goes and he teaches, he goes back home. And the cinematography in this film, the only way that I can describe it is disgusting. Uh, it's like this gross, almost like baby poop yellow hue that just makes you feel like you need a shower the whole time you're watching the movie. And so at the beginning of the movie, he's like in his break room on the college campus and one of the other teachers is like, hey, have you have you watched, do you like movies? And he's like, I don't really watch any movies. And the guy's like, oh, come on, you should watch these movies. And so he writes down some movies for him. And he ends up going to the video store and renting these movies. And one night he's watching this movie and he like falls asleep on his couch. And something happens where he wakes up all of a sudden and he feels compelled to go back and watch the end of the movie again. And he's watching it and he sees a guy who looks exactly like him in the movie, literally like a doppelganger. And so he, the movie is, he essentially becomes obsessed with figuring out who this guy is and why there is a person in the world that looks exactly like him. Yeah. And I think we talked about this briefly on their A24 horror episode, but th this is a horror movie. Yes. A hundred percent. It's a horror movie. I, I would say people don't think about it in context, but obviously like twins exist. There's people in the world who look like each other. But if you found out that someone in the world looked exactly like you and was out there living a life where they could literally pose as you and like steal your family or steal all of your money or do something where like, you know, they could take over what you know as your existence. That's a horrifying concept. And what I will say is what makes this movie feel like a horror movie is the score. Yeah. How, how is this not out on vinyl is what I want to know. I can't believe it. It's done by uh, Daniel Bensey and Sonder... Uranians, I think. I probably pronounced that wrong. Uh, but it has this really, like, moody and strange... It's not, like, as intense as some of Villeneuve's later stuff. Like, I mean, you think when he's working with Hans Zimmer and it's these really, like, striking intense scores this is a very subdued score but it's really eerie and ominous and that's what i like about it this movie is a mystery that argue argumentatively some people might say you can't solve but i think if you pay enough attention to the context clues of this film you can kind of figure out what villeneuve is getting at and i think that you know this whole idea of like dueling identities or how you perceive yourself or even looking at the human psychology as a whole that this movie is really uh fascinating in multiple ways and also in uh this film 
has a commentary on uh, something that I feel like has existed in multiple of Villeneuve's films that we've already talked about, and that is the treatment of women. Yes. Um, we mentioned even on, on that one episode, you know, you have all these visuals of uh, with the spider and how the women is stomping the spider and she's being paid off by men to do that. And there's all these visual cues that definitely bring that point home without being like really in your face. Yeah, and I mean, you think of even like the subtlety of when you're introduced to Jake Gyllenhaal's dueling identity, who is the actor, his wife seems like she's kind of in this miserable situation. Like, she's pregnant, she doesn't seem to really want to be there, like, and he seems to kind of push her to the back burner where he's more concerned with what's going on in his own life than caring about his wife, and you see that sort of get worse and worse as the movie goes on. And so I think Villeneuve really wanted this to also be a statement on the way men treat women, and and it comes through in a way that I feel like is much more subdued than a lot of his other films. Yeah, for sure. And there's also the whole aspect of one of the doubles when he discovers, you know, that he has a, a double as an actor. He becomes more obsessed with that and he almost starts embracing that, you know, that very kind of narcissistic mentality. And he starts becoming more like his counterpart and just neglecting everybody else around him too. Exactly. And this movie has a third act twist that is also just as wild as a lot of other Villeneuve's catalog. I feel like this one is, you know, Ray and I talked about it. It's very surreal. Uh, It takes a direction that I feel like, you know, if you're a more average moviegoer, you're probably not going to like it, which, you know, I'm always one to say challenge yourself try to watch things out of the realm of what you're used to but you know this movie it's worth giving it a shot because i think it's a really unique film that is definitely deserving of your time i i agree so if we're done with enemy uh after making two films for the same year uh we had a two-year break and Villeneuve came back with the film in 2015, Sicario. And Sicario is written by a guy named Taylor Sheridan, who uh, a lot of people are probably familiar with him because he's also written the film Hell or High Water, which was nominated for a bunch of awards. He wrote and directed Wind River. And he even ended up going on to write uh, the uh, second Sicario film. And this, I would say, is a much more straightforward film than what we're used to with Villeneuve. This is really just like simply a crime drama. There really isn't much more to it other than it is a it's a it's a movie about the police and the cartel. It also has like um, a commentary and you haven't seen Day of the Soldado, right? The part two? No, I haven't. Okay, so this movie also, like, it is a straightforward movie, but it also has a large commentary on, like, obviously crooked crooked law enforcement. It kind of shows a, a dark side that we, that in 2022 we are more aware of. We're more hyper aware of, of um people in positions of authority that abuse the power but back then when it came out like we were talking about it but not as as blatantly as this movie was showing us like some of the awful things that 
law enforcement will do, some of the laws they will break to get to catch the guy that they're after, no matter who they take out in the process. Part two kind of embraces a little bit of um, child exploitation in the drug um, in the drug world. Um, so there's a lot of those topics being thrown around in this one. Um, the I I've watched this movie several times, and I've recommended it to a lot of my um, friends, especially the ones that are from that Juarez area, and they're like, yeah, that's not that far off. Like, the, the, the violence and the, like, just the grittiness of everything happening across the border, like, that's not that far-fetched. And, and what's funny that you said that is, uh, I worked in the restaurant industry most of my life, and one of my, one of my jobs that I worked at for three years, most of the people I worked with were from Mexico and the Honduras, and I heard so many horror stories about when th uh, these families that I worked with lived in Mexico and dealing with the drug cartels and how a lot of them were their biggest their biggest problem with Mexico is that the government doesn't do anything about it. Uh, they literally turn their heads because most of the time their hands are in these people's pockets. And it's it's horrible to watch. And that was probably, I would say, my favorite part of this movie is the ideas behind that. Uh, I will say that I think the movie starts off really amazing. The first sequence where they're doing the raid of those houses, I thought it was so action-packed and like the performances were great. It's, I would say, high-octane. Like, you almost, like, can't breathe for the first 15 minutes of this movie. Because they go in, and it's like you've barely been introduced to these characters. Their lives are already in danger. And, and it just goes crazy, like, insane. But my, my issue I have with this film, and why I would say this probably falls near the bottom of the newer Villeneuve films for me, is that it kind of loses steam once Josh Brolin's character is introduced. I feel like they tout Emily Blunt's character as the lead in this film, and they're like, oh, she's going to be the one we follow behind. And she ends up really just becoming a vehicle for these other things to exist. Her character isn't really fleshed out very much. You get to a point where it's like, okay, she's involved herself in these criminal activities or these activities that the FBI are doing behind closed doors because they don't think any of it will get approved. But it doesn't really stick the landing for me because then it becomes much more about Benicio Del Toro, which he's a really interesting character, but it gets kind of all over the place to where by the third act, I was kind of like, okay, there's some cool action sequences, but I don't really care about what's going on anymore because you've shifted who this film is about. And uh, like, it's not done as well as I feel like a lot of Villeneuve's films are but I don't think that takes away from the fact that there are some really incredible action sequences in this like one of my favorite action sequences in the entire movie is when they're stopped on the border and I feel like obviously this is another Roger Deakins film and the cinematography plays a really great role in that you get a lot of those overhead shots of all the cars being stopped and then it's like they're looking at these different cars and calling over the walkie talkies about like oh there's this person over here or could it be this person who's going to come after us and I think building that tension is great and it really kind of sticks with you but the, my only issue with this movie is I feel like that doesn't exist throughout the entire runtime it's just a lot of brief moments amidst a lot of like procedural dialogue that I didn't care about as much for me I was like tracking along the whole time because uh, I didn't grow up in that bad of an environment across the border but 
I do have some memories of situations like that, um, like story time, um, just a brief little quick story. Uh, my mom, they were they were in town this weekend, and my mom was telling me a story that like I was actually born two weeks early because when she went to get her checkup, an attack broke out outside of the hospital, and they didn't let anybody leave the hospital for several days because there was like a standoff between um, a like the the government army and guerrilla um army and they just had a standoff outside of the hospital so they induced me early because they're like we can't let you go home under their circumstances and sometimes those standoffs would last weeks so then they just induced me early so i guess i was born in the middle of like a standoff outside of the hospital that is absolutely insane yeah that that's crazy to think about and it's crazy to watch this movie and to think that like this stuff actually happens and it's 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 insane so i think that's why i think that's why it resonated with me a lot more because i didn't live through it as in like i was in the middle of those things but i was around enough of it to like understand what was happening so i was like oh no i i get what's happening and it hits home for me a little bit more yeah and i think honestly one of the reasons why this movie didn't hit as hard for me is like i look at um, one of my favorite shows ever made, Sons of Anarchy, deals with like obviously the drug cartels and and arms dealing, uh, where it fleshes into like trade deals with Mexico. And I feel like that show really does a great job of showing those things while also having great character building. And so for this, for me, it's like okay, I've already seen this before. Like even like you look at a show like Narcos now, like the, the these this idea of like drug trade for Mexico to the United States, it's been done multiple times. And so for me, it's like, okay, I get the idea of the brutality behind it. I understand that. I want there to be good characters amidst that. And I think Villeneuve tried it with the the police officer who's like son was on the soccer team. Like, I think that that was trying to delve into that a little bit, but it almost just felt like, well, we need something for you to latch onto so that this situation will hit you a little bit harder. And then obviously they have the stereotypical shot of uh, Emily Blunt taking a shower after <laughs> the horrible... Th- it's like, oh, I have to I have to get away from all this. But like, I, there wasn't enough character punch for me to grab a hold onto to really love it. And I feel like comparatively to everything else in Villeneuve's catalog, especially like these later films, this would probably be the one I'd be least likely to revisit. Although the score is amazing. I do want to bring that up because that is another Johan Johansson score and it's brilliant. Oh yeah. No, and I'm glad that he, the Johan Johansson got as much um, love for that. Actually, that was, I think, one of the few Oscar nominations Johan Johansson got. Well, totally deserving because the man was a brilliant, uh, brilliant uh, uh, composer and he made amazing music. And I think that that's a great segue into talking about Villeneuve's next film, Arrival, which is also scored by Johan Johansson. Yeah. Uh, and Arrival, Ray and I talked about this in great detail uh, on an episode that we talked about uh, science fiction creatures. Um, but I think it's, it's safe to say that we both really love this movie. Yeah, we, I, I, I love Arrival a lot. It's a great science fiction movie, but one of the things I love about it is that comparatively to just like a science fiction film that's like, oh, here are these creatures, uh, and it's going to be about the creatures attacking, like I think of like a War of the Worlds or that type of situation, this is much more of like a procedural science fiction film, which I thought was a cool way to approach it. Like, 
doing it from a more procedural aspect and understanding how the governments would react to the spaceships just showing up. I thought that was a really cool, um, a really cool uh, way to tell the story while also having really great character development with Amy Adams' character. Oh yeah, no, I I loved I loved Arrival. Um, it was one of those movies that like it left me thinking for a long time. Um, the time travel aspect of it was also one that left me just continuously thinking about it. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think that the twist in this—that's what I wasn't expecting because the movie is so subdued early on, and I feel like you know you're so immersed in it because the score is beautiful, the visuals are incredible, and you're really immersed in this world. And obviously, you know, Amy Adams is having those dreams, and I wasn't expecting there to be some big twist. And when it happened, I was like, I see what you're doing here, Villeneuve. Like, this is really cool. Like, I I like that you were able to tell such a quiet story that also once again, and you know, we can talk about it with Sicario before, but like another film dealing with trauma in a very, in a very different way, because has this trauma been lived yet or has it not? We're not a hundred percent sure, but there is trauma involved. And I think it's really interesting to look at back now that we've talked about almost all 80% of Villeneuve's filmography and that trauma has existed in almost every single one of these films. Also, this is the movie where Villeneuve, whether this movie's at the top or the bottom of your list, this is the movie where Villeneuve, I feel like he went from being this up-and-coming director to a name, to a household name. I feel like he got so much recognition from the Academy Awards for this movie that I feel like it was from this point that Denis Villeneuve became Denis Villeneuve. He wasn't just like some up-and-coming director anymore. Well, and you think this movie was made on a $47 million budget and made $203 million. And also, and also like, this is the moment where Denis Villeneuve said, step aside Spielberg, step aside, you know, whoever you want to name drop, there's a new sci-fi genius in town. A hundred percent. And he is a science fiction genius. And that makes me wonder, and I know we probably, we're probably going to segue here into 2049 really soon, since we've talked about Arrival in great detail on the podcast already. Um, But I, I feel like I'll be really curious after Dune Part 2 what Villeneuve decides to do. Is he going to want to tell a more refined uh, character study story like a, like an enemy or like an Insandis? Or is he going to keep doing these really high-octane science fiction films? It'll be really interesting to see. I heard uh, uh, Sir Roger Deakins has a podcast. And him and his wife interviewed Denis Villeneuve. And he said that after Dune Part 2, he, wants, he said he wants to go back to making... He wants to go back and make like a more like small scale movie because he's like he's like after 49 and Doom part one and part two. He's like, I'm ready to kind of not worry about trying to world build and just focus on characters again. (laughs) Well, it also has to be tiring because I think about like, you know, you look at a film like Insandis and you think it probably had a relatively small crew. Uh, And with a movie like 2049 and Dune, you're probably working with an enormous crew. And so that's got to be exhausting. Well, and he said, um, he said, speaking of, um, of Dune and 2049, he was like, he's like, a lot of people don't think about this, but I'm not just responsible for like making the movie, but I'm also like, what are, what's a car? What does a car look like? What does a phone look like in that world? What does, you know, a piece of clothing look like in a world like that? And he's like, 
those things are exhausting to come up with as well. But I will say, I think what helped him probably a little bit too, is that like with obviously with 2049, he had the source material from the original film and then Dune, there's been a million interpretations of that. So I'm sure there's a lot of things he could look into to kind of get an idea of where he wants to go. But I guess we can jump into it now since we're talking about it. We both love Arrival, but now we're going to talk about, I think a movie that Ray and I would both say is just a brilliant work of cinema that even though people called it a flop, uh, it still made more than its budget. It was a $150 billion budget and it made $260 million in the box office. And that's Blade Runner 2049. Which Blade Runner 2049, in my opinion is a masterpiece is it's not a 10 out of 10 it's an 11 out of 10 it finally landed roger deakins after 14 nominations his first oscar which is insane to think about because the man is one of the greatest cinematographers to ever work yeah so it finally landed him his cinematography um I know a lot of people were nervous because those legacy sequels can either be super hard to pull off or the greatest thing you'll see. And I think this one this one fell in the category of like this one of the, one of the if not the best legacy sequel we've gotten and it's just perfect. I, I have zero bad things to say about this movie from, you know, he, this is his first time collaborating with Hans Zimmer for the score. Um the uh Actually, Johansson was set to score it before he passed. Um, that's why they got. That's why it's a collaboration between Hans Zimmer and Benjamin Wallfish because they kind of had a scramble to get a new composer because Johan Johansson passed before before he got a chance to work on it. So this movie is just perfect. I have to watch it all the time. Um, I said this before, but I'll just say it again. I did a a ranking one year on my Instagram about my favorite movies of the last decade. And this is my favorite movie of the last decade. Uh, it's better than the original in every way. Uh, I watched it for the first time this year uh, when Ray was talking about Villeneuve. And I will say that what this movie benefits from is with the original Blade Runner, Ridley Scott is a really talented filmmaker, but he's not a great character writer. I mean, even if you look back at like Alien, Alien has... Ripley, who is an interesting character, but at the end of the day, what makes Alien su such a great film is the environment and the setting and the buildup of the the impact of what's going to happen. Twenty, the original Blade Runner, Harrison Ford really isn't all that interesting of a character. He's really just a vehicle for this really amazing and immersive world, which don't get me wrong, I like it, but Rutger Hauer is way more of an interesting character than Harrison Ford's character is in that film. And in this movie, you get someone like Villeneuve, who is an incredible storyteller, who really does a great job at getting the most out of his actors. And this film has incredible character building. And I think that's what makes it so great is, yes, it has beautiful visuals. Yes, it has amazing score. Yes, it's just enthralling from start to finish. But the character writing is so good in this movie that even like... Ryan Gosling's character, who we're told in the first 10 minutes of the movie is a robot, is one of the most fascinating characters in the entire film. Well, and then some of the stuff that Villeneuve did leading up to this film, like, um, I, re I read somewhere that um, when they had the pre-screeners, all of the critics that were invited to watch the, the screeners, they received a letter from Villeneuve asking them not to reveal any plot points of the movie in their in their reviews Villeneuve even went as far as uh, and this is no longer a spoiler but 
don't know if you you remember that scene where um, Ana de Armas gives him a name and tell, calls him Joe. So the way that they edited the, the original theatrical and teaser trailers, they would call him Joe, not K. They dubbed everything to... So they're calling him Joe. So the whole time you think he's a regular, I just the whole time I went in thinking he was just a normal Blade Runner. Yeah, it's uh, honestly like what a great way to market the film. But at the same time, too, like the whole idea of this movie of like is Ryan Gosling Harrison Ford's kid is like such a cool plot and a way to move this movie because that's you know we're left with. The, the whole idea of uh, Harrison Ford at the end of the first film that like is he in a relationship with this robot like they're running away together and like taking it that direction with this movie it really kind of engages you and and asking that question the entire time and then introducing uh, Ana de Armas's character who really humanizes Ryan Gosling and makes you feel for him because of the relationship between the two of them even though she's literally just an android like it's just so beautiful what Villeneuve was able to accomplish with this and what I love about it too is like I said about that reoccurring theme of trauma you could even argue that that exists in this film oh yeah yeah absolutely it does especially with the flashbacks of being bullied by those kids as a child and I, I think there's so many great moments in this film. I honestly like it. I agree with what Ray said. It is a masterpiece. And I've only seen it once. And I would say that it is a masterpiece. I've seen it multiple times. I can't even count how many times I've seen it. I saw it twice in theaters. Which, by the way, talk about a theater experience. I can only imagine. Oh, I, what I would give back to go back to that. But I think this is Ray and I's just glowing recommendation that of Villeneuve's catalog, watch 2049. Yeah, like right now. Yeah, stop what you're doing, stop the podcast, and go watch Blade Runner 2049. So that leaves one film left in Villeneuve's catalog, Ray. That is right, that leaves... And do you know what that film, do you know what that film is? Well, I, well fear is the mind killer, so you might as well... It's... <laughs> clue me in it's it's the movie about about the sandworms <laughs> dune uh i watched this last night <laughs> um i loved this movie uh it's i know a lot of people are saying that it's difficult to judge because it's part one of a two-part film but i think even existing on its own as its own story it's brilliant it's just as immersive and engaging as 2049 and its storytelling elements there's something about the way that Villeneuve films these movies that it's just impossible not to be immersed by staring at these frames of film that just look like uh, pieces of art. You could screenshot any segment from this or 2049 and you could probably hang it in your house and it's just beautiful. Other than like Baron Harkonnen coming out of that black tub of goo. Oh, you don't like Baron Harkonnen's. <laughs> it looks disgusting. <laughs> But yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Dune was incredible. See, like, here's almost where I envy you a little bit because Dune got pushed back so many times that it was almost infuriating. I didn't even know that. Yeah, so, like, they announced Dune. They announced that Denis Villeneuve was going to do it. It was supposed to come out in 2020, um, and we all know how that went. But the, we the funny thing is that the reason why... It got pushed back is because Denis Villeneuve would refuse, refuse to release it on streaming services. Oh, it's because he wanted a theatrical that bad? He wanted a theatrical that bad that he was like, 
it was supposed to come out sometime in like the summer of 2020 and then everything shut down so i got pushed back and got pushed back to october 2020 and then he pushed it back to like sometime in like the beginning of 2021 and then he pushed it back all the way to october of 2021 well, I can, I can see, you know, I watch this film at home, obviously, but I can see just how much this film would benefit, especially from like an IMAX viewing experience, just because of how, that's right, so. how amazing the sound design in the movie is. And I love the Hans Zimmer score in this, similarly to 2049. I love like the guttural chanting in a lot of the songs. Uh, I, it's, it's like, it really kind of just immerses you into the world of Dune. And obviously I've never read the book. Uh, the only familiarity I have with Dune is David Lynch's film because I love David Lynch. And so I've seen it and I know, I knew like the core concepts behind Dune and like what it's supposed to be. And I think this movie just succeeds in every way at building that world, making you invested in the story. Uh, it, it's such an immersive experience. I know there's people that are like, oh, I'm a Star Wars nerd. I think after this, I'm a Dune nerd. I just want to know more about Dune after watching this movie. Well, not only that, but also like, um, it's incredible all the things that, um, how involved all of the people in this team were. Like, for example, um, Hans Zimmer, not only did he compose an incredible score, but also, like, he was involved in a lot of the sound design things. Like, he would, like, some of those noises you hear, some of the more, like, ambient, really, like, jarring things, like, that was him at work, too. So it wasn't just, like, him composing pretty music. Like, he was also, like, working on some of the sound editing and design and giving it that really, you know, that immersive sound to the world. And it's incredible. And I'm excited for part two. Um, I think I've read the book um, and I think this is as accurate as it can get without, you know, going down a very weird rabbit hole. My question is in the book, is there those ships that look like bugs? Because that is the coolest thing in the world to me that they have. Those are so cool. The wings like move like bugs. It's just the coolest thing. Yeah, they look like like dragonflies or something. Yes, it's amazing. Like there's so many little, and that's what you were talking about with what Villeneuve said about building these worlds. There's so many little details like that in the costume designs and in the, I love the like, thing they turn on on their suits that looks like a shield but like shows up red when you get stabbed that was supposed to be the um that was like that that, that was supposed to be the the giant blobs that uh, uh david lynch did yeah it looks so much better in this movie obviously <laughs> uh, <laughs> um david i love you but that movie's a mess uh, there, there's a lot of really cool visual effects in that movie, uh, and there's a lot I respect about David Lynch's Dune because it's something he loved a lot. But that's a film that you can a hundred percent chalk that one up to studio interference when they tell you you only have so much time to work on something. Because he, even David, David says I love every film in my catalog except Dune. <laughs> oh yeah, no, and and there's also something like you know I feel like a lot of people will try to jump in and blame directors and like, I mean, a director only has so much power, you know? Exactly. There's always going to be some form of studio interference because the thing is, when you think about it, the person who has the most say are the producers. They're the people who are controlling the money. They're the people who are saying you need to put your, I I think perfectly of uh, the scene where Lynch was shooting Twin Peaks season three 
and one of the producers in the background was talking about this scene that he was filming and he says, who gives a fuck how long a scene is? (laughs) (laughs) And it's, it's true. It's like directors have this vision of how they want to flesh something out, but you also have to think like you pay these actors to be on set for a specific amount of time. You only have them for the amount of time you paid them for. And you only have so many times to get a scene. Cause I don't think when people understand when you shoot a movie, you set your cameras up and you shoot from one angle and then it's like, stop, we have to set everything up again. Change the lighting again. Change everything. Sometimes for just one line of dialogue. So you think about a movie like Dune that's two and a half hours long. This was probably shot over an immense amount of time. Oh, yeah. Like, that's why part two won't come out for like another year and a half. Yep. Uh, and boy, oh boy. I loved the first Dune. It was amazing to watch, but how much more amazing is it going to be to stare at Florence Pugh for two and a half hours? Of course you want that. Listen, (laughs) you knew I was going to. So that's Denis Villeneuve's filmography. Yay! Yay! I will add this, though, Nate. Um, I know you identify with the queer community, but every time you talk about Florence Pugh, I'm like, dude, this guy's straighter than me. I love Florence Pugh, dude. She's, I'm (laughs) obsessed with Florence Pugh. I can't even lie. Not to mention, she's just an incredibly talented actress. So, like, what more do you want? But that was our discussion of Denis Villeneuve's filmography, and Ray thought it would be fun, so we can just do this now if you want. To rank his filmography! And we can just go through it real fast. We don't have to... To dwell. Um, so we can go back and forth to make it fun for the audience. But since I've watched all 10, I can give out two of mine first. And then I'll let you go since you have eight to rank. So uh, I'm pulling up my list. This is my very professional list I made last night. So in 10th place for me is Polytechnic. Uh, as Ray and I said, I think it's the weakest of his filmography. And then coming in at number nine is Maelstrom. So Ray, what would be an eighth place for you? Polytechnic. <laughs> yeah. And in eighth place for me is August 32nd on Earth. So a lot of his early work, but I think his 32nd on Earth is probably the most entertaining of his initial three films. So what's in seventh place for you? This is where it gets interesting for me to hear yours. Um, so you're going to be disappointed, but it is Enemy. Ah, seventh place for me is Sicario. Ah, interesting. Be- uh, yeah. Because sixth place for me is Sicario. Oh, well, sixth place for me, which this might upset you, and I'm sorry if it does. Sixth place for me is Arrival. Oh, that breaks my heart. Yeah, I love love Arrival, but I love the films in the rest of his catalog more. I get that. That's number five. And I feel like this list is not like, oh, I dislike. This one is like, how can you pick your favorite child? Uh, exactly. And I think a lot of it too is like a lot of it's rewatchability factor for me, which not to say Arrival doesn't have that, but I feel like the movies above it on the list, I'd be more in tune to rewatching. So for me, the next one would probably be Prisoners. Prisoners, uh, which is funny because Prisoners is number five for me as well, uh, <laughs> which uh, honestly, I feel like Prisoners could flip with some of the higher films on the list with a rewatch. Uh, but it's been so long since I've seen it, I can't really, like, five felt like a safe place from what I remember to put it on. So what's number four for you? Uh, probably, uh, this is kind of tough. Um, I think it would be in Sandis. Fourth place for me is Enemy. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, I love, I, Enemy is probably the Villeneuve film I've seen the most. I've seen it four times. I think. I think for me, Insandis is just going to keep going up the more I watch it. So what's number three? Uh, Dune. 
Dune. So number three for me is Insandis. Okay. Yeah, I, I loved Insandis. It really took me by surprise. But I feel like Insandis could probably flip with the other films, depending on the mood that I'm in. Gotcha. So what's number two? It's Arrival. <laughs> Arrival. So you you love Arrival, and two for me is Dune. And I, and I love Dune. And I love Dune, but I feel like Dune, um, I need part two. Yeah, I totally understand that. And we both know what number one is for both of us. It's Blade Runner 2049! 100%. Yeah, tw- 2049 <laughs> is the best film in Villeneuve's catalog without a question. Uh, I feel like it's the, it's definitely the most rewatchable, 100%. Best performances, best score. There's literally... I Honestly, like between that and Sandy's, um that and Sandy's Dune and, and Enemy, I would say I don't have a problem with any of those four movies. I don't have a gripe with any of them. Right. And like for me... If if I'm gonna get technical, like if Dune is an A, if if Blade Runner twenty forty nine is an A plus, Arrival, Insandis, and Dune are all like between A and A minus. Dude's a ma- he's a masterful filmmaker. There's not there's not much more we can say. So that was a really great discussion of Denis Villeneuve. I absolutely love his movies, and I'm so glad that you picked him to watch because it gave me an excuse to go through his catalog and watch all of his films and uh honestly i'm sure this will make you really happy but he cemented himself as one of my favorite filmmakers now i absolutely love i love his work i'm really excited to revisit it and now i'm just going to go through and pick up all these blu-rays so that i can own his whole filmography <laughs> I own everything physically until Insandis. I have Blade Runner 2049 and uh, Enemy are the only two of his films I own, so I need to pick up some other stuff. All right, so you said you had something you wanted to do this episode, sir. Hit me with it. It's just a simple It's a simple question. That I'm trying to come up with like a little simple question to, to kind of segue into, into the outro of the episode, and that is... Nathan, it is November 4th as of recording of this episode. What are the your three anticipated movies you have for the remaining of the year that haven't come out yet? Man, three movies that have not come out this year yet. Um, I would say, I got to think about this one. Um, I know one is The Whale, the, the Brendan Fraser, Darren Aronofsky movie. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that mostly because I love Brendan Fraser. I think he's an incredibly talented actor and I'm not the biggest Darren Aronofsky fan. Like, I think that his work is kind of like 50, 50 for me as far as like, I agree with that. I, I don't think he is a perfect filmmaker by any means, but I think that he's really talented. Um, I would say the film that was just released tar with Kate Blanchett. I don't know, as a third one, I'd have to think about it because I'm not even sure what's left to release this year. Oh, you couldn't come up with a third. I, I'm looking at my list right now because I, I honestly, like, I don't, I, I don't even know what else is coming out for the rest of the year. I, I know that's terrible, but, like, I, I, I've seen a lot of great movies this year and I I don't know. I've got to look into it. I, I'm not 100% sure. But give me a couple and I'll come back with one. It's Puss in Boots. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I can name you. I can give you three different ones. I'm going to forego the whale because you already mentioned it. So I can give you three more besides the whale. Yeah. Go um, for it. I'm very excited. This one just came out. Like literally it came out this week. Um, so, I'm, so I might yeah. be cheating a little bit, but it's all quiet on the Western Front. Yeah, I loved 
I loved that book when I was growing up, so I am excited to see that. It's on Netflix. The, the Netflix, it just came out, so I'm excited to see that. I'm really stoked to... Um, we mentioned the whale, so I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna skip the whale. Um, I'm actually really excited to watch um, the menu. Yeah, the Anya Taylor Joy movie. I totally forgot about that. That looks awesome. Yeah, well, and, and Ray Fiennes, like, like I know we're Anya Taylor Joy fanboys, but like, Ray, I'm a I'm a Ray Fiennes fanboy. 100 percent. I love him so much. And um, Violent Night. Oh, the Santa Claus, like. Funny enough, Jess was literally showing me a poster to that movie and was like, that's a movie you should be excited for for the rest of the year. <laughs> I'm excited for it. Yeah, um, I actually, I have another one, um, which is funny, but The Fablemans, uh, the, the Steven Spielberg movie. I'm really excited about that. I was really hoping that we were going to get something in the dirt this, this year, but it looks like it won't be until next year. Yeah, The Fablemans, uh, the, David Lynch is actually going to be in it. Uh, but it's but it's Paul Dano, and it's from the looks of it, it's supposed to be like semi autobiographical of Steven Spielberg's life. Oh, cool! And it honestly looks really interesting. And I watched a trailer for it the other day, and I was like, you know, Steven Spielberg hasn't really made anything over the past couple of years that has excited me a whole lot. But that does, and then also the new um, the new movie from uh, oh my god, why can't I think of his name? Uh, Damien Chazelle, Babylon. Oh, a- anything he, p- anything he puts out is amazing. So it's safe to say that we're not we're not sharing too much excitement for Avatar two. No, I don't really care about that movie at all. Uh, <laughs> honestly, yeah, me neither. I me neither. I I will watch it, um, but at the same time, like I don't I don't know. I'm not like the biggest Avatar fan. I it, I am excited. I am excited for Strange World, the new Disney the Pixar movie coming out too. I am not. <laughs> Really? I, I saw the trailer for it and thought it looked horrible. Uh, personally, I, <laughs> I, I like this whole new animation style that everything looks like. Um, oh, what's that movie called? Onward. Oh, <laughs> like every character. It all looks the same. Like, I, I don't know. I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm excited for that world, with, though. Like my, my thing is like that world looks very like Lovecraftian esque, which is why I got excited. But what happened to Pixar? making every movie try to look super unique and different to where like everything blends together now. Like I think of that. They got tired of killing off families, man. Oh God. Well, that was like uh, when I watched Onward, I was like the one dude looked just like Linguini from Ratatouille. Are you just recycling the same animation over and over again? (laughs) Like, come on, get it together. But yeah, uh, those are some films I'm excited about this year. I should be more knowledgeable about that. I also really want to see, um, uh, Park Chan Wook's decision to leave. He's one of my favorite Korean filmmakers. Well, cool. That was just the random question I wanted to throw your way this this week. Well, speaking of this week, would you like to mention something that you watched this week for the audience uh, that's not Denis Villeneuve affiliated? I'll mention one um, just to keep to be mindful of the time. But I I watched the new Henry Selick movie Wendell and Wild. What did you think about it? Because it's been on my list and I'm really excited to see it. Um, I need to rewatch it. I I liked it. It's definitely No Nightmare Before Christmas. I think I like Coraline better as well. Yeah, that's the general. Con- it's the weakest of uh, it's the weakest of his filmography. I feel. Um, I I like James and the Giant Peach better. So yeah, I do think it's the weakest. Um, I I like what he's trying to do. I like the ideas thrown in. Um, 
I just feel like with as much talent that there was behind this, like, you know, you have Jordan Peele, Keegan-Michael Key, um, Jordan Peele's production company is behind it, Henry Selleck, like, you have so, and then, you know, a really cool story. I wanted more, and I felt like by the end, it was just like, oh, so this was, it wasn't a bad movie, it was cool, but that's the thing, it was just cool. It wasn't, it it wasn't like Coraline. When I watched Coraline, I was like, that was incredible. That was awesome. And I knew it was never going to compare to Nightmare Before Christmas. But I was still very impressed by Coraline. But this one, that was like, oh, so Coraline was better. <laughs> well, and the thing is, and I don't mean to say this to be mean or anything, but when it's given directly to Netflix and not given a theatrical release, you kind of have an idea that it's not going to be the same quality. Yeah, although, I don't know, we've had some solid Netflix original. That is true, uh, but I feel like for something like that that's based off of uh, of a person who made Nightmare Before Christmas and Coraline, you have a feeling it would do really well in the box office. Especially if they would have released it, or if they, well, which it did come out right before Halloween, but it was, it was fine. I'm not going to sit here and tell you it was bad. It was a good movie. It was just, I wanted more out of it. Yeah, that makes total sense. Well, I'll quickly mention one that I watched that wasn't Villeneuve-affiliated, since I did spend most of my week watching his movies. Uh, I watched the... uh, It's a film on the Criterion Collection called Come and See. I'm sure you've probably seen the cover of it before. That sounds familiar. Yeah, it's about uh, it's about World War II, and it's told through the uh, the eyes of this young Russian kid who joins a militia of people who are trying to fight German soldiers out of Russia. Uh, it's one of the most horrifying films I've ever seen, just depicting the violence of war, um, and also kind of like the loss of innocence. And it's just an amazing film as far as like cinematography and sound design. The sound design in the film is haunting. Uh, just like when you think about, we talked about Villeneuve how like visceral the gunshots are and all that. Like it was really disturbing to see, but it's an absolutely incredible film. Probably one of the best war movies ever made. And I'd highly recommend checking it out. I will probably be picking it up on the criterion sale this month. Cause I loved it so much. I watched it on the channel. Very cool. Yeah. So that's what we watched this week. And next week, uh, I am very excited to say, uh, with a huge anticipation, Ray and I are going to be talking about David Lynch. <laughs> Oh, yes, David Lynch. Well, Ray might say some words if he can ever get me to shut up. <laughs> so so next week, Ray is going to take a break. He's going to spend the whole podcast napping while Nate just goes off about David Lynch. Nah, I'm really excited to talk about David. I In any kind of format imaginable, if I get an opportunity to talk about his works and work my way through his filmography. He's he's probably the director that I've seen his films the most. So I'm really looking forward to talking about it. And I think he's a director that, Ray, when we talk about his filmography, it's kind of wild. Like, people see him as this very one specific thing because of, like, the surrealism in his catalog. But he's really covered all different types of genres throughout his career. And so I'm really excited to talk about it with you. So we're going to be talking about David Lynch. Or, or, or Dave, good old Dave, as, as Nate would call him, when they're out having drinks. When they're out having drinks. Yeah, good old, da- good old Dave. When, he, when he's at home and he's like, Hey, Nate, I need you to say hello to my, my living room chair. Say hello. 
it's David. David brings me a lot of joy. He's he's a wonderful person. I actually have a David Lynch T-shirt on right now. Uh, so yeah, I uh, I'm really looking forward to that. So uh, get excited about that. If you haven't seen any films in David Lynch's catalog, watch a couple before the episode, like we said for Villeneuve today, so that way you can be more immersed in the discussion. As always, if you want to give us a follow over at the Film Monsters Podcast on Instagram, you get updates about the episodes. Ray and I love engaging with you guys. You can also follow our personal Instagrams at Analog C and my exit unfair for the both of us. And we look forward to talking to you next time. Take care, everybody. Also, go watch Godzilla. It was Godzilla Day this week, and y'all should be watching more Godzilla. Yes, go watch Godzilla. Goodbye, all.